Well, good morning and welcome to the Cross Point Living Room. And thank you for continuing to, to give generously toward Operation Christmas Child by bringing in items and uh, stuff so that those kids, Sun Chasers, can pack up those shoe boxes in November and send out as many shoe boxes as we can send out. Today, we finish up our series with, uh, that we've been calling Trump Card. If you missed any of the first three weeks, I'd encourage you to listen online. In this series, we've been going after the thoughts or the, uh, the things that can be replayed in our minds over and over and how the Bible calls us to take, thought, or take every thought captive and make it obedient to Christ. That if we don't, we will allow ourselves to be in this stronghold or caught or paralyzed in a stronghold of lies or things such as uh, fear, insecurities, condemnation. Today, we're going to talk about doubts and discouragements. The trump card for today is the truth that we must remember in spite of doubts and discouragement is this. God says he is. We can't lose sight of our God. We must keep growing to know God better and allow his voice, his word to be the loudest in our lives so that no lie from the devil or from our own flesh would keep us from obeying and following him completely. Galatians 5.13 says, For you were called to freedom, brothers. You and, I, you and I were not called to, to be chained up or enslaved to our sin or what we've always known, but instead, through Jesus, we've been set free. We've been called to freedom in Christ. And we might hear that and go, sweet, then that means I can do whatever I want, right? And, but then Paul finishes the sentence with this, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love, serve one another. So we're not called to freedom so that we can satisfy our sin or to pursue things that are not from God or chase after uh, feeding our pride or our selfish hearts. Instead, we're called to freedom from our sin, from the stronghold of lies, so that we can serve one another, so that we can love God and love others, to give our lives away and serve our God and His eternal purposes. My prayer in this series is that God is taking the scripture that we've been looking at each week and using that to break down strongholds to remind us of the grace, the power, the majesty, the greatness of our God. That in our hearts and lives we might elevate God to His rightful place day in and day out. That where He would not just be a part of our lives or, or secondary by any stretch, but rather that He would be our life. That He would be primary and worshipped in our way of life. And if we're honest though, sometimes the hardest times to worship God to lift him up as primary, if you will, to see him for all his beauty and holiness is in the midst of doubt and discouragement. When we're walking through some trial or some, some really difficult season and in a sense our lives are surrounded by a fog and as a result we lose sight of our God. And when we begin to doubt who our God is, it will inevitably lead to discouragement because we will take our eyes off of our glorious God and begin to look inward. We'll begin to look at ourselves. Our eyes will move from being fixed on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, and instead fixed on the obstacle, the challenge, the mountain that is staring us down. The word discourage means to deprive of confidence, hope, or spirit. In life, we face discouragement. There's no way around that. I would love to tell you that the longer you follow Jesus, the less discouragement uh, you will, less chance of hitting discouragement that you'll have. Uh, if I stood up there and told you that, I would just be an absolute liar. The fact is, the longer you follow Jesus, the more likely you are to hit some season or some, something that has the potential of leading you into discouragement and doubt. That's just the nature of life. So this message or God's word is not going to try to um, help us avoid bad things happening to good people. Jesus told us in John 16, that in this world we will have 
troubles. So this is not about avoidance, but rather much more about how we walk through and respond to the trial. Because the longer we follow Jesus, here's what should be growing in us, our response to the trial. So that when we hit the season or circumstances that have the potential to lead us down discouragement or doubt, that in, that, in, in response to that, we might be growing and making progress in how we respond to that season. That in the midst of the most difficult situations, we might not lose confidence or hope in our great God. Because remember the trump card is this, God says He is. God says He is. That no matter how challenging the things around you may be, that our God is still God, that His nature and character, who He is, are still the same. He is the God who is unchanging and constant and is our rock in the midst of the greatest storm. In my life, I've had seasons of doubt and discouragement. And gasp, I've had several since becoming a pastor. I know that's shocking, um, maybe depending on how you envision pastors. Um, I would actually say I probably have, have had more in the last seven years uh, of being in this role where my mind or my sinful flesh wants to elevate a circumstance greater than my God, where I become fixated on the particular situation rather than becoming fixated on my Lord and Savior. And it can lead to the spiral downward of doubt and discouragement. Maybe for you, you are discouraged at your own struggle or battle with sin right now. Or the circumstances around you, the world you live in maybe, the relationships you have, Some of you might be discouraged as a parent or spouse. What you envisioned for your family or for your marriage back whenever is not the current reality. Maybe you're discouraged as a friend. You've been investing into a friend and and sharing your faith with them and you're not seeing much change happening. Or you watch the news or you get on this particular news website and, and after looking at the top headlines, you're feeling some doubt and discouragement creep in. Or maybe you're in the midst of a a trial, a really difficult season, maybe of loss with friends, with family, with job, uh, in your marriage, in your walk with Christ, and you're really wondering, when's this going to end? In a sense, you're going, okay, Lord, uncle, I'm good. I think I've I've learned what you wanted me to learn, and I think I'm done. And if you examine your heart, you see this seed of discouragement or doubt creeping in. God says he is. This is the trump card that we must be reminded of, the truth that gets laid down and trumps any apparent circumstance that might seem greater. That our God is still our living hope, that He is almighty, that He is good, that He will enable, empower, He will lavish us with His grace, that in the midst of doubt and discouragement, we might see the truth of who God says He is. If you have a Bible, open it up to the book of Habakkuk. If you need a good Bible, feel free to grab a free one at Guest Connections, Habakkuk. And no, I did not just clear my throat. I'm not fighting some phlegm in my throat, okay? Um, Habakkuk is this little three-chapter book in the Old Testament. So if you find Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, you go a little bit further back, four or five books, five books, I believe, to the book of Habakkuk. Many of you, many of us have never read the book of Habakkuk. Many of us, this is the first time you said, Habakkuk, I didn't know there was a book in the Bible named Habakkuk. So if you, you don't have to be a Bible hero right now, just use your table of contents, find out where it's at. No one's going to shame you. If they do, then they can leave, okay? Um, If you're on a device, then you're a step ahead and you're already there. Um, But Habakkuk was one of the first books of the Bible that uh, I preached through years ago. And as I thought about today and prayed, I got a sense from the Lord that this is where we needed to go uh, this morning. That in the story of Habakkuk, that 
we'll be reminded of the trump card that God says he is, even in the midst of doubt and discouragement. The Old Testament has 39 books in it. The last 12 are what's known as the minor prophets. Habakkuk is one of those minor prophets. And a prophet would would speak on behalf of God. God says to the prophet, say this, and then the prophet turns around and says this to God's people. And for the most part, God used prophets to call people to turn away from sin and to live in faithfulness and obedience to God. It's very similar to any communicator of God's word nowadays. The book of Habakkuk was written in about 600 B.C. And the incredible thing about God's word is that it's timeless. Today we're going to be looking at a book that was written in 600 B.C., over 2,600 years ago, and it's still going to be so relevant and applicable to our lives. Because in Habakkuk, we're going to see a prophet openly express some doubt, some discouragement. He's asking questions like, why is there injustice in this world? Why are, the bad, why are the bad guys taking advantage of the good guys? God, why do these people who lack integrity, why do they prosper? Why do bad things happen to good people? Why, God, what is going on? What are you doing? Why aren't you doing this or that? And Habakkuk looks around and he's discouraged at what he sees. Reading through Habakkuk is like reading through a, a, a diary uh, between a, a kind of a journal or diary between a man and Almighty God. As a kid growing up, you don't have to raise your hand, but did you ever run across your brother or sister's diary and you thought, sweet, let's see what's going on, all right? Um, but, well, in this situation, we're going to be kind of reading between Habakkuk um, and this dialogue between himself and Almighty God. And a quick overview of the book's conversation looks something like this. It starts off with Habakkuk openly expressing honestly to God that he doesn't like what he sees around him. God responds with, I've got a plan. Habakkuk again responds with, I'm not sure if I like that plan, God. And God responds with, I've got a plan, trust me. And then Habakkuk lands with, okay, God, I trust you. I'll worship you no matter what, and I'll rejoice in you no matter what. Kind of back and forth like that. And throughout the whole book, there's this theme of faith, even in the midst of circumstances that appear to be discouraging. God is saying to Habakkuk, do you trust me? And Habakkuk has to learn to trust God even when he doesn't like, agree, or understand God's plan. Can you relate to that? Have you had those moments in your life where maybe you're in one right now and you're like, God, I don't get it, but I know you want me to trust you and follow you, so I'll trust you, knowing that you're faithful. The word Habakkuk actually means to embrace or to wrestle, which is a fitting definition as we look at this book because, in a sense, that's what he's doing He's wrestling with the things of God that he doesn't understand. He is, despite his doubts, despite the potential of being discouraged, embracing the God who he trusts no matter the circumstances. As people, we typically love the stories that, that are neatly tied up with a bow and everything is all pretty at the end of them. For instance, uh, this will date me, but for the Cosby show, everything was wrapped up in 30 minutes and that included commercials. The Huxtables could resolve any parenting issue with one or two conversations. I'm still looking for that to happen. Uh, I've yet to, maybe once in a while it happens. But man, everything was resolved neatly, tied up with a bow, beautiful presentation in 30 minutes. For me, the shows that bugged me as a kid were the ones that said the fateful to be continued, dot, dot, dot. All right? You, I mean, you're, um, you're thinking... I'm watching Knight Rider, and he's not going to get this thing resolved in five more minutes. I've got to go to bed, and, uh, 
and then I'm going to see to be continued or Dukes of Hazard. You're thinking, oh no, and that, that voice comes across. General Lee jumps the creek or the creek. He jumps that thing and it pauses to be continued. The voice comes across. You're like, no, don't do that. Well, in the situation, you're going to see a lot of to be continued in Habakkuk. We get things like tension, drama, and unanswered question, and that resembles a lot like our life, right? Life doesn't always neatly get tied up with a bow in 30 minutes. There is often tension, there's often drama, and there's often unanswered questions in life. And so the context of Habakkuk's world is this. Good people were not so good. Bad people taking advantage of the good people. Corruption, violence. God's people had turned their back from God. The nation was currently in disarray. I know it's hard to imagine such a place, but try to put yourself in Habakkuk's shoes, okay? Chapter 1, starting in verse 2. He's praying, How long, O Lord, must I call for help, but you do not listen? Or cry out to you violence, but you do not save? Why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrong? Destruction and violence are before me. There is strife and conflict abounds. Therefore, the law is paralyzed and justice never prevails. The wicked hem in the righteous so that justice is perverted. In those verses, we see Habakkuk being really honest before God in prayer. He's hitting this faith wall in his life where what he sees isn't lining up with what he believes. Habakkuk is struggling, but he never grows bitter toward God. Rather, he comes to God in this gut-level, honest prayer. In a sense, Habakkuk is saying, God, if I was in your shoes, I would not have done it that way. I would not be doing it that way. And we've probably all had that moment. I know I have. And he's wondering. This is the theme of chapter 1. He's wondering. How many people... um, there's so many people are afraid to, to bring their honest questions before God. But don't forget that if you're in Christ, He is your Heavenly Father. You've been adopted. He wants to hear from you. As a, as a dad, I absolutely love when my kids bring their honest gut level, what's truly happening beyond the superficial. They bring that to the table, ask questions, and we have conversations. That stuff, that stuff drives our relationship to a deeper, more intimate level. Our connection with our Father through Jesus Christ is no different. Over the past couple weeks, in conversations with friends, I have found myself saying this phrase, your authenticity is refreshing. These friends are not trying to fake something, put on a good show for me. Sometimes you get around a a pastor and everybody kind of wants to put on a good show and uh, pretend that everything's fine when it's really not. But rather, these friends are being honest. Uh, For example, a couple friends, more or less saying, I know in my head that God is trying to use this trial to shape me. I understand the point of James, but I'm just sick and tired of it, and I want to be done. Your authenticity is refreshing. It really is. Or, uh, I haven't confessed this to anyone before, but this is, uh, God's asked me to move move this into light, and so I just kind of need to lay this out there and, and ask for help. Your authenticity is refreshing. I have a friend who I'm trying to reach and I keep trying to invest into his life and love him. I'm praying for him. And one thing I love about him is that he is authentic. He's not trying to pretend that um, he's following Jesus when he's not. He's quick to say, I, I'm, I'm kind of hung up on this or I'm kind of struggling with this. And honestly, your, your, your authenticity is, is refreshing because it's not, not to, so often we just pretend to follow Jesus when we really don't care. And I love to talk to a friend that says, I'm not following Jesus. I, I, I think I need to. I'm not, though. 
Well, that authenticity is refreshing. Similar to the friends I've talked to lately, Habakkuk, his authenticity is refreshing. Tim Keller, who's a pastor in Manhattan, uh, has said that churches should feel much more like a waiting room for a doctor and less like a waiting room for a job interview. Because in the job interview, we're all trying to look as competent and impressive as we can. Weaknesses are buried and hidden. In a doctor's waiting room, we assume everyone is there who is sick and needs help and wants help. And that scene is much closer to the reality that's really happening in our lives. So can I encourage you to not only in prayer with your Father in heaven, but uh, to be authentic, but among close believing friends in face-to-face conversations, over a cup of coffee, over a meal, driving in a car together, face-to-face conversations. Be honest about what's really going on, especially if you're in a season of doubt or discouragement. We followed Jesus together, not just on the sunny days. All right, so Habakkuk is hitting this faith wall in his life where what he sees isn't lining up with what he believes. In verses 2 through 4, we read of his questions. Then verses 5 through 11, we read of God's response. And what God said back to Habakkuk was not what he wanted to hear. Look at the nations and watch and be utterly amazed, for I'm going to do something in your days that you would not believe even if you were told. Habakkuk, you're going to be shocked when you hear this one. I'm raising up the Babylonians, which was a, uh, the greatest military power on the planet at that time, a people far worse than, the, uh, than Habakkuk's. And God goes on through verse 11, going, continuing to tell how powerful and awful the Babylonian people are. Here's the deal, Habakkuk. I know you hate the Babylonians. I know there are far worse people than you are, but I'm going to use them to destroy you. God has held the Babylonians back for years from attacking the Israelites. God's people have been ignoring him, placing themselves up as their God, putting their trust in themselves rather than God. And God is telling Habakkuk in those verses, your people are putting their faith in themselves and that faith is misplaced and the Babylonians will take it out. As verse 11 says, the Babylonians are guilty people, guilty men whose own strength is their God. They will overcome your walls, your rulers, your army. If you're putting your trust in yourself, Habakkuk, you're misplacing your trust. And that's going to become really clear when the Babylonian people come in. Notice the comparison God is drawing here. Babylonians trusting in themselves. Their own strength has become their small g God. And then God is calling Habakkuk, trust in me, even if you don't understand it. Live by faith. Walk by faith. And so Habakkuk hears God's plan is like, what? I, I, I don't get that, God. You, you, and you want me to tell the people that? The Babylonians far worse than us are going to come in and destroy us. You want me to share that? Well, I've got some questions which is where he goes, starting in verse 12. And all of this raises the question, can you still be a deeply committed follower of Jesus and yet at the same time express doubts, questions, and wonder before a holy God? Can that happen? Yes, you see it in Scripture. As believers, we can simultaneously express our faith and yet our wonder of, okay, God, I don't really, I'm not really sure on this one. Look at Psalm 42 and 43 this week. Look at Mark 9. Hear me on this. God is big enough to handle your questions and doubts. God, I know you're good, but this doesn't make sense to me. Notice that when Habakkuk has questions, he doesn't run away, though. He doesn't run to other sources. He runs to God. And we should do the same thing. He runs to him in prayer. This is how it opens up in chapter 1. 
Rather than run away from God in this crisis of belief, we need to run to Him, run to the Scriptures, ask God the questions, ask Him to reveal the answers because He's the source of life. He's the creator of life. Habakkuk in chapter 1 had hit a crisis of belief. And when we hit a crisis of belief, we have two choices. Will we choose to go back to trusting in ourselves, in our ability to get through it, in our ability to solve the problem? What we see with our eyes doesn't line up with what we believe in our hearts, so we just assume that God doesn't have our best interests in mind. And we take the leadership, in a sense, back from our lives and say, well, God, you must not be who you say you are because you didn't do it exactly how I wanted you to do it. And then we would just walk away. And we come out from underneath his authority and we place ourselves up as our own authority. Or we, place, or we press through that discouragement and doubt with this attitude, God, I'm still going to trust you. I know that you're faithful to complete the work that you've begun in me, and things may actually get worse. You might experience more pain and hurt, but if you continue to stick with God, no matter what is going on around you, and you Habakkuk him, you embrace him, I promise you that he will take you to a place where your faith is stronger, your dependence on him is greater, your joy in him is deeper, and I can promise you that because James 1, 2 through 4 promises us that. You embrace him because God says he is. He is the rock. He is the fortress. He is our stronghold. Chapter 1, wondering. Chapter 2 is all about waiting. He says this, starting in verse 1 of chapter 2. I will stand at my watch and station myself on the ramparts. I'm going to go out to the walls of the city. I will look to see what he or God will say to me and what answer I am to give to his complaint. Uh, My role as a prophet again, is to hear from God, deliver this to God's people. And then he says, verse 2, Then the Lord replied, Write down the revelation, make it plain on tablets, so that a herald may run with it. For the revelation awaits an appointed time, it speaks of the end, and will not prove false. Though it linger, wait for it, it will certainly come and will not delay. Yes, Habakkuk, the Babylonians are going to come in and attack you. And it might seem that it lingers, but it isn't. It will come. It won't delay. Now in history, it lingered for 13 years. 13 years. Why? Why wouldn't God just come in and wipe out the people and bring judgment? Because he wanted to give time for people to turn back, to turn from their old ways of living and walk in faithfulness to him. That's 2 Peter 3.9. It's still happening today. He's patient, wanting everyone to come to repentance. Notice Habakkuk prays and brings his honest questions before God, and then he stops and he listens. How often do we just talk and talk and talk and talk in prayer and never stop to listen? Or how often do we talk horizontally to, and, and not just stop and get into the Word or just, just lay before Him in quietness and silence to listen? We may not always like what He has to say, even though he's working out all things together for the good of those who love him, that process is not our process. God's ways are higher than our ways. His thoughts are higher than our thoughts. His perspective is limitless, and we're limited at best. He is God, and we are not. This is why the trump card for discouragement is not, we say we are, because it's not about us, but rather it's God says he is. He is who we Habakkuk. He is who we embrace in the midst of difficulty and doubt. 
in the waiting, our God develops perseverance. He grows in us a trust of him. He stretches our faith. In the midst of waiting, we still actively pursue God. We still actively serve others. We still actively love others. So we don't just kind of sit. We still actively pursue him, even in the waiting. Verse 3 reminds us that the revelation awaits an appointed time, a fixed time in history. We must remember that nothing's going to speed it up. Nothing's going to slow it down. God knows his timing is best, even if it isn't our timing. God is saying in chapter 2, In my time, Habakkuk, if you wait, you will see the Babylonians get what is coming to them. I know it doesn't make sense that I'm bringing them, I'm using them to bring judgment on the people. I get that, but Habakkuk, trust me. I see what the Babylonians are like, and I'm a just God. My word is sure. And then Habakkuk 2.4 says, See, he is puffed up, his desires are not upright, but the righteous will live by his faith. The New Living Translation says it this way, Look at the proud, they trust in themselves, and their lives are crooked, but the righteous will live by their faithfulness to God. Here God, once again, is drawing this distinction between those who trust in, in, in themselves and those who put their trust in God. Those who are puffed up and proud, and then there are those who are humble and trust in Jesus, who live by faith and not by sight. But the righteous will live by faith, not by what they see is going on around them, not by circumstances, but they will have this faith in God that says, I will wait on you to fulfill his promises. They will have this unshakable faith to trust in the person and work of Jesus rather than themselves. They will have faith that God will be their provider, that God will sustain their marriage, that God will bring that child back who has run away from him, that God will break that habit in their lives, that God will provide for them, that God will be near to the brokenhearted, that God will bring them through this trial, and no matter what, God will still be God. Now what happens, though, when you don't see the promise fulfilled in your lifetime? What if you don't see it come to pass on this earth? What if there are still questions that linger, that that aren't neatly tied up with a bow? We've all got those. Verse 20 in chapter 2 says, But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. But the Lord. Even though I, I don't understand it, but the Lord is over all of it. Even in the wondering and the waiting, but the Lord. One trick you learn as a, uh, as a teacher, as a parent, is that there's noise in the classroom or in the room going on, and instead of yelling, which does prove to be effective at times, um, but instead of yelling, you just have the same constant voice kind of slightly underneath the noise of the crowd, and one kid picks it up, and then the next one, and then the, then the next one, and then you have their attention. Well, I think in the noise of our lives, our lives are noisy, right? And we intentionally kind of do that to ourselves. But life is noisy. In the day-to-day, in the busyness, in the waiting, God is saying, but the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. But the Lord is in his holy temple. And he's just saying the same refrain over and over until we quiet down and stop freaking out sometimes and just hear him. But the Lord is in his holy temple. In the midst of the wondering and waiting, the doubt, the discouragement, we can still embrace and hold on to the fact that our God is reigning and ruling. He's in control, that He has not forsaken us. He has not left us hopeless. 
We see Habakkuk express that reality in words in chapter 3. Habakkuk has to learn to trust God even when he doesn't like, agree, or understand God's plan, when he has some doubt and discouragement. Can you relate to that? Have you had those moments in your life? Maybe you're in one again right now where you're like, God, I don't get this. But I know you want me to trust you, so I'll trust you knowing that you're faithful. Here's the reality of Habakkuk's situation in this three-chapter book. The circumstances around him have not changed. By chapter 3, they haven't changed. God's people haven't suddenly turned around. The Babylonians are still going to show up. But his perspective on the situation has changed. He is now what you would call maybe having a Habakkuk chapter 3 type of faith. And what we find in chapter 3 is a worship song that he wrote after coming out of this wondering and waiting stages. Verse 2 in chapter 3, Lord, I've heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds. O Lord, renew them in your day, in our day, in our time. Make them known in wrath. Remember mercy. He's saying, God, I've heard of all these incredible things you've done in the past. You've delivered your people out of bondage. You've done so much. And Habakkuk is saying, I've heard about it. I've read about it, but I haven't seen it. And I want to see it. The word there, um, renew, can be translated as revive or restore. Renew them in our day. Revive us, Lord. Restore your people. God, I've heard, I've heard of you doing amazing things. Do it again, Lord. So what's one application for us in the midst of doubt and discouragement? We must remember what God has done. We must remember. Instead of just looking at our circumstances that surround us, we must sometimes look back and remember His faithfulness. I remember how you saved me there. I remember how you took me through that trial, and I've already forgotten that. And I remember how you provided for me there. Why am I questioning it now? And I remember how you saw me through that, and I remember how you were near to me there when I was completely shattered. I remember, I remember, I remember. And that's Habakkuk. He's going to start looking back on what God has done for his people through the years. And as he remembers, it's going to trigger this increased faith in him. Starting in verse 4, he says, His splendor was like the sunrise, rays flashed, from, uh, rays flashed from his hand where his power was hidden. Plague went before him. Pestilence followed his steps. He stood and shook the earth. He looked and made the nations tremble. The ancient mountains crumbled and the age-old hills collapsed. His ways are eternal. God, I know that when you come, every knee will bow. I know that everything bends and yields to you, kings, nations, people, Everything and everyone submits to you, O oh God. So in the midst of the trial, the doubt, the discouragement, Habakkuk is lifting up God to his rightful place. His rightful place of, of king, of majestic, as powerful. And then in verses 7 through 15, Habakkuk goes through this very detailed picture of God's faithfulness of the exodus, of how God delivered his people from being in bondage, how in Joshua it gives the account of how God's people stepped into the Jordan River at flood stage, but they stepped in, in faith. Waters receded. They walked over on dry land. Stories about how God has set his people free. And when we're set free, when we're liberated, we're free to worship. Our response is worship, and that's chapter 3, worship. He goes from wondering to waiting to worship. And I pray that as a way of life, we might make the same transition moment by moment, uh, day by day, year by year, that same transition from wondering to waiting to worship. And we see that transition come full circle in chapter 3, verses 17 through 18. 
an incredible statement of faith and trust here. Because as we remember what God has done in the past, as we remember, we also trust Him for what comes in the future. Because again, God is the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. He's the Alpha and the Omega. He's the beginning and the end. So that's why we embrace Him and not ourselves. That's why we remember and we see that faithfulness. We see it in Scripture. We see it in our own lives. And we can trust Him in whatever is in the future. That no matter what the situation we are in, the doubt, the discouragement, we remember that God says He is. We remember who our God is. And while circumstances may change, our God does not. Verses 16 through 18. Yet I will wait patiently for the day of calamity to come on the nation invading us. Though the fig tree does not bud, and though there are no grapes on the vines, though the olive crop fails and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, though I have no reason to rejoice, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. Even though I have no crops, no animals, yet I will rejoice, maybe for you, even though I face doubt about my future, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. Even though I'm discouraged about the direction of a friend or of a child or of a parent, of a co-worker, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. Even though I'm tempted to doubt God in the midst of this trial or this season of waiting, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. Even though we prayed for this, whatever this is, we prayed for this to happen, and it hasn't, and it may never happen, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. Even though I don't like it or understand it or I'm confused by it, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. Because when it comes down to it, no matter what the circumstances around us shows, we know we have enough in Christ. And that's not trite. That's just an anchor we hold on to. That He is enough for all eternity. That He is our solid rock, our firm foundation. He is the anchor in our lives. And He is the one we live for. He is the one who gives us the grace and the power to, to endure. God is our strength, and that's where Habakkuk lands in verse 19. The sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to, to go on the heights. Deer are able to climb on very rugged terrain. Very, um, whether it's mountaintops, they're able to navigate the mountaintops and the valleys. They're able to navigate the obstacles of life. And through Christ, he makes our feet like the feet of a deer. So even in the wondering and the questioning, the sovereign Lord is our strength. Even in the waiting and the temptation in the waiting to doubt or to be discouraged, the sovereign Lord is my strength. So even when faced with the potential to be discouraged, I will remember who my God is, that God says he is, and as a result, I will not be discouraged, I will not be doubtful, He will be my strength. The sovereign Lord will be our strength. Father, I thank you for that truth. Holy Spirit, you know far better than me about where this message lands on our hearts. So I pray that you would uh, minister to us. You would encourage us. God, that you would remind us of who you are. If this message is for something right now, if it's for something in our past, if it's something in our future, God, I just thank you that your word is living and active. I pray that as a church, we would be full of individuals who are 
putting our strength and our hope and our trust solely in you. Teach us to know how to uh, walk with one another and bear with one another through a trial, through a season of wondering or waiting. Teach us as a church to worship you despite circumstances, to cling to you, to lift you up to your rightful, holy, majestic place. Day in and day out, I pray that we would make that transition from wondering to waiting to worship you. That even though whatever the circumstances around us, we remember what you've done, even though no matter what is around us, we trust you and we love you. And we thank you that you first loved us. We thank you that we are never forsaken. We are never left hopeless, that you are a living hope. So remind us of that this week. In Jesus' name, amen. Next week, we begin an 11-week series through the book of uh, 1 John. We're calling it The Walk uh, from a particular verse in that book of the Bible. So I'd encourage you to, uh, to come back, bring your Bible. If you're not connected to a community group, a lot, most of our community groups are sermon-based, so it would be a great opportunity to jump into a group as we get into 1 John. I encourage you to read it this, well, uh, this week as well. Next week, we also have our tailgate afterwards. A lot of pulled pork, a lot of hamburgers, a lot of hot dogs, uh, eating it all for the glory of God. We talk about fasting in August. Now we'll talk about tailgate. Um, but, uh, but I encourage you to come, bring a side dish, bring a dessert, bring a yard game. We'll be outside afterwards. Uh, great time to fellowship and hang out together. So make, a, make it a priority to be there. Meet somebody new before you leave. God bless. Have a great week.